1: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City. Also here in New York City, my co-host every week at this time is Ryan Goodman of both NYU Law School and co-editor of Just Security. How are you today, Ryan? Pretty well, David. Thanks. And also, as every week, coming from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, we have Dr. Kavita Patel, who is um, a scholar at Brookings Institution, a former senior official in the Obama White House, handling health policy, a former Senate staffer, and a practicing physician. How are you, Kavita?
0: doing great, happier to be in Washington DC with a Biden administration,
1: prouder uh, to be in- We are all happier, the world <laughs> is happier to be in a world with the Biden administration. Um, I would like, we're gonna talk mostly about what is on everybody's mind I think today which is the impeachment trial uh, and uh, get all your perspectives. But every week I like to make sure we spend a couple of minutes talking about the ongoing pandemic. Um, and I'm going to give you uh, four facts, four, four things from the news. Uh, Kavita, you can react to any of them you want. Ryan, you can react to any of them, and then we'll move on to the next thing. Um, uh, but it was kind of a big day in 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 COVID news today. Mm-hmm. So let me see if I can remember them all without referring to my notes. First of all, of course, we have the uh, ongoing and rising death toll from COVID. Uh, COVID, which, depending on how you're counting it, is officially around 475,000. Of course, if you use the unofficial tolls we've been using, that could be as high as perhaps 600,000 from the undercount that we've discussed. Um, There was a report issued today by The Lancet Medical Journal, which suggests that perhaps 40% of that death toll would have been avoided, could have been avoided, Mm -hmm. Uh, If the U S had taken measures that had kept our death rates in line with the rest of the G seven. So that's a, I mean, that's fairly substantial. I've heard higher numbers. The Lancet is of course, highly, highly regarded. We also um, learned today that um, President Biden um, had secured 200 million more doses hundred million more of each the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines to bring the total now committed um, to 600 million, which is enough for 300 million people. And he also said that about a hundred million that we thought we would get in June would come in May. And he also said that the Trump administration had completely dropped the ball on this. And then the final bit of COVID news, um, this is just from today, and of course, everybody's watching the impeachment, but the final bit is that it turns out the president of the United States, and this is zero shocker, our former, as I like to refer to him, our disgraced former president, Mm -hmm. um, had COVID much more seriously than we thought, and was nearly put on a ventilator, and they covered it up. Take your pick there, Kavita. That's a lot.
0: Yeah, I'll start with the first and the last uh, because they're related. I mean, the two go hand in hand that you had a president. By the way, we did talk about this briefly on Deep State uh, for listeners who want to go back in time. We talked about how it was highly unusual, the pattern of of his kind of clinical events for him to be, quote, okay And when his, you know, hack of a physician would say things like, you know, his. uh, oxygen saturation was in the 90s and then briefly like you know like below 90 and then nobody when the reporters in the pool tried to press on him uh he was like oh oh you know i can't share patient information etc so all of us knew there was something that was not transparent but unfortunately we've just gotten used to that with the trump administration it's related to your first point david with the lancet and the world health organization also chiming in as well that that Forty percent, And I think that is probably an underestimate um, based on their modeling, 40% of our deaths could have been prevented. And that's largely due to several factors, including not doing what the other G7 countries did, which was to immediately put in very strict travel and movement precautions, stay at home orders. We did do that in March, as you know, uh, but it took a long time considering the data that we had in February including the National Security Council had as well. Number two, we never committed to testing. So we truly were not aware and still are not today. The number of cases that we have, um, if you look in all the literature, we probably actually do have about 90 to 100 million Americans infected. Two thirds of them just don't know it. And so testing was not in place. And then the third really was a combination of um, when people would go to the hospital and and kind of we, we delayed, unfortunately, our access to not just the treatments, but we really were behind even Italy and Spain as they were coming up and thinking through these clinical interventions. We got caught flat-footed with some of our clinical work with great doctors and nurses, but we had no national kind of guidance in any form or fashion as to how how best we should be treating patients, and also how to help health systems. You, you know, we still have morgue trucks backing up to hospitals. We had health systems even as early as late as last week that were overwhelmed. So, those are all kind of the reasons why this was entirely preventable. Underscoring that we never had a national plan, underscoring or sorry, kind of laid with like the crown on top with a president who paraded around in the suburban. Talking about how great he was when obviously he was not. And that on in the news that's breaking today, David, that you've tweet that everyone has kind of seen now, he had infiltrates in his lungs, which means he had lung damage evidence. We knew this probably from day one or two because they started some of those treatments on him. So all of this goes hand in hand. And the new um supply of vaccine is absolutely credit to Joe Biden just being persistent and every day pressing on his team. You know, When are we gonna get more vaccine? How are we gonna get more vaccine? What do I need to do to get more vaccine? And that's exactly the kind of leadership that if we had had that, David, I think about this all the time. If we had had that a year ago, we wouldn't have 500,000 deaths. We would have deaths, we'd still have a pandemic. You and I might still be on Zoom with Ryan. We might not be in person, but we wouldn't have had this many deaths.
1: Um, yeah, I've I've done this podcast in person with Ryan and it's really nothing to write home about. Um, uh, no, it's it's great. It's really, it's an experience. I hope we can all do that again real soon. Um, Ryan, do you have any reaction to any of these things or a question for Kavita about it before we move on to the other subject?
2: Sure, I just wanted to uh, ask Kavita about something that was on your tweet thread that you tweeted about, which is the um, optimistic outlook in the, in the United Kingdom. Yeah, and- and uh, how much we can use that as a basis for optimism in the United States? Because you had said something about that the United Kingdom, because of its public health care uh, system, allows exactly. for contact tracing in a way in which <laughs>
0: right. we right. don't have
2: that. So, I, so what does that future look like in the United yeah. States? And what does it look like in the United States when you have a huge uh, influx of travelers into the United States all the time?
0: Yeah, uh, it's, uh, you know people will. My public record is out there. I've been very supportive of Medicare for All, who is one of the early people involved in kind of supporting um, physicians for a national health program. And we're seeing why Uh, those of us who understand what some sort of organized healthcare system can do, Ryan, is exactly what the UK has seen. They actually understand kind of where most people live. They actually have one uniform database, even if you go to different and we all know this. If you're rich and wealthy in the UK, you can get access to care that other people can't outside the NHS. That's life. But we know where people have been vaccinated we actually know if those people who have been vaccinated show up someplace else with an infection and then even more bizarre is you know you, you and i we're all walking around with these little cards with like shot number one and shot number two they have all that systematized and electronic in a way at the end in, in the uk they understand in a precision-like way who's not getting vaccinated. And so that, combined with their travel restrictions, combined with, if you talk to any of your former colleagues, David, in the EU, it's still pretty much kind of a lockdown. It's not easy to kind of move about freely. So they just have a very different attitude. So I don't know if our curve will follow theirs quite. We always tend to follow the UK by about two to three to four weeks. So I'm hoping these steep declines persist. But the other little piece of news that's local to me that we've now confirmed all of the variants in the D.C., Maryland, and Virginia area. And so as we suspect, they're here. So will we see some either uptick, Ryan, or some slowing of that curve? Because we are not putting into place the precautions the U.K. did to squelch kind of the growth of their variant. And so we we might see a little bit of an uptick if we can't, um, and you you and I are seeing clubs and God forbid bars reopening, and that's what we need to do supposedly to keep the, country functioning but it's coming at a cost i think
1: um yeah dr fauci said that uh, most americans should have access to the vaccine by april
0: yeah, I think that's optimistic. I, I'll be honest. I think that um, Johnson & Johnson's supply in March is 3 to 5 million because they had some production issues. I expect their one-shot vaccine will get approved authorized soon at the end of the month, February 26. 3 to 5 million Johnson & Johnson. Those hundreds of millions of doses aren't coming fast enough from the Pfizer and Moderna that Biden's secured. Cured, so I would love to tell you that April will be like land of plenty. Maybe by the end of April, but you know it's February 11th, and we're still only in most states vaccinating 75 and above and 65 and above. And if you look at the demographics, we have a huge chunk of the population that's in that 40 to 65 age range. So vaccinating people a two dose vaccine regimen is not going to be it's a non trivial kind of effort.
1: Okay. Um, We're about to turn our discussion to uh, impeachment. I see we have been joined by our uh, third guest for that, our friend uh, Barb McQuaid, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, professor at Michigan Law School. And also, Barb has gotten into the podcasting business because, well, everybody's gotten into the podcasting business. Let's just be honest about this. But... (laughs) Barb's, Barb's doing something cool because I think you guys all started to do this in various places. Um, but you're doing a pod called Sisters in Law with uh, Joyce Vance and Joe Wine Banks, and you and Kimberly Atkins. So uh, congrats on that, Barb. Uh, Thanks, I'm sure David. People can find that wherever they find fine podcasts.
3: Yes. The key phrase, I guess, is um, you can uh, find us wherever you get your podcasts
1: wherever you get your podcasts. So it's called (laughs) sisters in law. And, 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 and of course, uh, all those folks are, are, are great folks. And so uh, definitely something to listen to Um, in addition to all your deep state radio listening. um, I'm going to ask one last question on COVID here. If you can bear with us, it's going to take 15 seconds, the question, but uh, Kavita, I heard someplace on the internet where you hear these things twitter okay i saw it on twitter that if you took every covid cell on the planet earth mm-hmm. it would fit in a coke can
0: yes just illustrating how small this virus is yes that's right it just tells you how small the i i used to know it down to the micron the diameter but it's a small virus and it's amazing how it's kind of paralyzed all of us it just shows us that we're always humbled by mother Nature we try to think about all these kind of artificial threats, but at the end of the day at the end of the day it's uh you know humble mother nature that can yeah
1: no I found that very humbling of course it was on Twitter so I saw it with a response saying don't drink it <laughs> I, you know it's, uh, it just sounds <laughs> Sounds like don't
0: inject it. Don't drink it. Yeah, right. <laughs> sounds
1: sounds like good advice to me. Probably good advice also with Coke, but let, we'll leave that aside. Um, so, uh, but let's switch to a discussion that uh, all of us have been following very closely, and that is the state of the impeachment hearings. We recorded this on Thursday afternoons, and not too long, uh, not too uh, long ago. Um, a friend of ours who from the pod who's been on the pod a few times, Representative Jamie Raskin, uh, wrapped up um, the case of the House impeachment managers, uh, which, uh, A, uh, was well argued, well thought out, well substantiated, it seemed to me kind of rock solid, and it is universally regarded that they will lose. Um, Barb. <laughs> Um, but what's, what's, what's your reaction? So forth. And perhaps do you share? I mean, when I hear that, it it really sort of drives me around the bend. I mean, it, this is a kangaroo court. It is a completely fixed trial, it seems, but what's your reaction?
3: Yeah. And I, I agree with you that it does seem likely that, um, the Senate will vote to acquit, that there will not be the two thirds necessary to convict president Trump. But I think, um, You know, it all depends on how you define winning and losing, and I think that even if President Trump is not convicted and disqualified from seeking office in the future, there has been some value in um, this accounting. Um, It has been sort of a truth commission, and I think members of the public have had an opportunity to see a lot of this video, some of it it, which had not been aired before, um, to Couple it with all of the public comments and tweets that President Trump has made going back to the summer about how if I lose, it will have been rigged um, and seeing how this propaganda campaign has all played out. And so I'm hopeful that even if he is not convicted, all will not be for naught. Uh, I think that um, the public will have had an opportunity to learn uh, a lot from this episode in history.
1: Well, Before we get to the drill down, I'd like to get Ryan's reaction and Kavita's to what they've seen. What's your reaction, Ryan?
2: Um, I, I like how Barb framed it. It depends on how you define winning. Um, and as I had mentioned the last time we were on the pod, that I was very concerned that this might be, not concerned, but thought of it as an opportunity, I guess is a better way of putting it, That the house managers could defeat the big lie um, and at least educate a larger segment of the public to understand that they've been lied to. And in fact, those who are prone to believe in conspiracy theories, there's a real conspiracy (laughs) for them to believe in, which is the big lie um, that they've been lied to by a powerful uh, political leader and and a party. Now, the house managers have tried to steer clear of, blaming the other Republicans and the Republican Party and try to focus on, on the quote-unquote singular, as they say, role of President Trump. Um, but I do think that that is a way of looking at this. And the way I've thought about it, in another way of like how do you define winning is if he is convicted in the court of public opinion and if there's a more general understanding among the public that he did this, that he's responsible for it, that it was all foreseeable, um, that he might not be formally disqualified from running again for office, but he may be more disqualified from being in the public space, uh, being a legitimate uh, political actor uh, in our democratic processes. And I think that would be to whatever degree the house managers have been able to amplify that effect, I think is uh, positive.
1: Kavita, when I watched uh, this, um, I did not expect to have such a strong emotional reaction. A lot of the video that has been shown over the past few days has been deeply, deeply um, disturbing. Uh, I worked on the Hill briefly. You worked on the Hill at greater length. You have friends working on the Hill. How did you react to what you saw?
0: Oh, and I did. I labeled it for what it is. It's appropriate to have a grief reaction watching it because that's, that's what it should provoke when you see, no matter what party, I mean, and then when you see what Eugene Goodman did with Senator Romney, I mean, you start to see these, you know, acts of heroism. So, you know, I that combined with where we are with COVID, David, it just made me so much more emotional. And and honestly, I'd, I'd love to hear all three of your perspectives, but Barbara, especially yours, you had had a series of tweets talking about, you know, not just looking at Trump's actions during kind of that January 6th period, but what you just said months before, years before. And and so I have to ask this, if it seems like there's an inevitability to, to not impeach, but where's the accountability? You, I mean, you've stood in these legal circles and, and Ryan and David, what, what do we take away from that? If you watch those scenes and have that somber grief reaction that I think everyone had, especially the Senate chamber, How do you come away from that and take what a year ago, Trump, remember when Kevin McCarthy took and kind of tore up the impeachment documents and said, this is a victory. I'm sure they'll do that again. And it hurts even more the second time around because of the video and the footage and the circumstance of terrorism. So how, how do we actually process, how do we cope as a country if there's no accountability?
3: Well, we we may get some accountability for some of the actors in the form of the criminal charges that have been filed against them. I think more than 200 individuals have been charged with crimes. But I think you're right. It leaves um, unaccounted for President Trump's behavior unless he's charged with a crime. I don't know the likelihood of that. But I suppose ultimately all of this gets decided in the court of public opinion. We had a rebuke of President Trump, I would say, in the November election. Um, and uh, perhaps he just ends up in the dust heap of history. But I I think when you take the long view of this, uh, you know, the day will come when people look at Donald Trump as one of the great villains of history.
1: I hope. What do you think, Ryan?
2: Um, So I always think that the greater degree to which he's delegitimized increases the likelihood that other forms of accountability will catch up with him. So that will be greater support for the New York authorities and now it looks like Fulton County in Georgia uh, to potentially, um, well, it sounds like they're criminally investigating him for election interference in Georgia. So if we emerge from the impeachment trial with him understood as being criminally responsible for the events of um, January 6th, then I think it amps up the opportunity for other actors to move ahead as they would to treat him like other people who should be subject to the rule of law. So I think there's that. And then there's a little bit of a wild card that I'll just throw out there, which is that it looks like we will emerge with a bipartisan, obviously House already and Senate vote that says essentially that Donald J. Trump incited and uh, provided aid and comfort for the uh, insurrectionists. And the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution allows for Congress, through some form of legislation, to disqualify somebody for future office if they are involved in an insurrection or provided aid or comfort for insurrectionists. That is a kind of a, a backup option. Um, and there's some idea that you could actually pass that through a joint resolution so you do not need to worry about the filibuster in the Senate as another measure of the public record. Now, there's a second order, more complicated legal questions about does Congress actually have to set up some kind of adjudicative body to make that determination or does it actually have to be passed by legislation that is subject to the filibuster? All sorts of things like that, but at least there's some other measure here that might be available um, to Put a marker down um, in terms of what he has done, and what you know that that form of accountability, in a certain sense. Well,
1: well before we go further, uh, Barb, what do you think of Ryan's crazy but otherwise appealing idea uh,
2: about using
3: the Fourteenth Amendment?
1: Yeah, and using it with a vote where you could get it with a majority vote and move ahead like that.
3: Yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I will admit it makes me a little bit uncomfortable, um, basing it on a majority vote. If he is a, acquitted um, at the impeachment trial. Um, I know what it says, and it's just I, I don't know that it's ever been used before in history, certainly not against a president. Um, and the use of it is is rather novel. Um, and it seems that whichever way this trial comes out, acquit or convict, or if the Fourteenth Amendment is used, um, President Trump will either be a martyr uh, who was, uh, you know, uh, the victim of a witch hunt uh, or a hero, uh, for overcoming the witch hunt. And so um, I think that getting the facts on the record are as important as any ultimate decision is made. And I worry that the use of the 14th Amendment might just fuel that sort of backlash um, that that uh, he is fond of, of using. So I'm a little nervous about using the 14th Amendment, frankly. Well,
1: Kavita, let me go back to one of those questions that has to do with... Um... The, the, the experience of the Hill, but also has to do with Barb's point about the, the longer view of history. Um, one of the house managers today brought up the fact that the cap- Capitol building, you know, was now a fortress and, you know, in, in a kind of an armed camp. And, and you know, I think the point was, you know, the, the facts of this aren't in dispute. D- domestic terrorists attacked the Capitol. The Capitol was proved to be vulnerable. The consequence was that fences are being put up around the Capitol. The military is stationed around the Capitol. The Capitol, which used to be school kids walking up and looking at the rotunda and going through the place, and, and was, you know, um, it, was, it wasn't just a place where legislation was done, it was a symbol of functional democracy, will be for the foreseeable future a symbol of dysfunctional democracy. And, and that seems to me to be a kind of a verdict in and of itself, but I'm wondering what you think.
0: No, and I was on the Hill during the transition before they built that visitor center. So it was even more accessible kind of in those older days where you didn't have to all kind of funnel in for this one part. And you could even have, you know, those same children and school children take the trams, you know, that connected the Senate and house chambers to the main, uh, to the main area for the floor votes, et cetera. So it's, it's, it's terrible, and and I I also honestly the day January sixth as it unfolded, those of us that were on the hill and off the hill were texting and. I said, this is going to, you know, we're all going to see like security heightened, and it'll never go away. And it's just going to be more of those driver barricades. Same thing with the White House, David, I'm sure you all three of you remember a time where you could actually get pretty darn close to the White House and, and see the portico and, you know, even take a peek into kind of the press area. And now it's built back so far that, you know, you can barely, you can maybe go to kind of see the ellipsis and go in. And so what does it say about the symbols of our democracy writ large? What's next? The Lincoln Monument, the Jefferson Monument? I mean, it feels like there's and I think that's what's hard and 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 Ryan, I'm rooting for your novel use of the Fourteenth Amendment because I feel like that's what we need now is something kind of crazy that comes out of left field and tell and gives the American public a little bit more sense of order. I think we're all looking for that sense of order. What we're seeing on tele, what we're seeing on video, there's no order, and there's no ration there's no reasoning to it. And I think it's our human instinct to want to make sense out of all of this, David. And that's what I can't do.
1: No, no. And you're absolutely right. When I was in the Lincoln administration, the White House was completely, <laughs> um, they, you know, you, you, you could go right, walk, and seriously, people would walk right in. I mean, they would just go in and say, I'd like to see the president. Um, I, w- I wasn't there. Uh, but during when I was in the Clinton administration, I remember regularly walking across Um, the grass and the morning dew from the Commerce Department into the White House through the Southwest Gate or coming in there. And it was easiest thing in the world to get in and to get in and out. Ryan has a question for Barb. Um, So,
2: Barb, thought to ask you a question, uh, especially tapping into your uh, prosecutorial expertise uh, on the question of the absence of, it looks like there might be an absence of witnesses in the trial. Mm -hmm and um so that's still to be determined after they wrap up their arguments after the senators ask their question then the rules allow for the house managers to call for witnesses but you know representative raskin's closing argument sounded Mm -hmm. like he's not going there yes i agree yeah and then what so what do you think about that in a couple of different ways so one is the advice it's maybe you know it's hindsight in hindsight but the absence of calling for witnesses and subpoenaing documents. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we how do we think about what that in terms of is it this missed opportunity? On the other hand, maybe you might think, no, on the other hand, they can wrap it up and say, look, it is it is common sense as Representative Raskin says, you have it right before your eyes. And were we to say we needed witnesses, it would suggest we have we- a weakness in our case. So something mm-hmm. like that, the ups and si- ups and up, upside and downside of witnesses. And then the second is, if you were, if you had the subpoena power, what would you go after? Because I would think that the one thing that could actually change, not necessarily Senate Republicans' minds, but the public's mind, is evidence of what Trump knew in advance, what he was mm-hmm. told about the insurrection, about the armed groups that were coming and what they were planning, and what he did in the Oval Office on the 6th. Like, I'd like to know, just not even witnesses somebody subpoena the court, the phone records. I wanna know what did the yep. time stamp of the phone call between him and Senator Tuberville um, that Tuberville alerted the president at a minimum on that call, according to Senator Tuberville that uh, Vice President Pence was in danger. You know, the, so that's the, how would one actually prosecute this case if one decided to use the subpoena power? Um, and what do you think about the pluses and minuses of them looking like they're not gonna be doing it?
3: Yeah, now if this were a criminal case, then I think you would absolutely want to undertake those steps. You know, yesterday um, they presented testimony um, citing witnesses who were unnamed sources to media, uh, you know, like uh, so, uh, someone, uh, a government official told the New York Times the following, you know, that President Trump was gleeful during uh, the siege and some of these other things. And that would just never even be uttered you know, in, an, in an open courtroom because there's no foundation to that. You can't cross-examine a person whose identity you don't even know, um, uh, let alone rely on the hearsay of what they said. You'd have to call them and have them present in the courtroom. So, um, but of course, this is not a criminal trial. This is a political uh, process, a political proceeding. And I think the, the house managers have probably correctly perceived that it doesn't matter, that their goal is to get this information in the public domain, um, that there's not really an opportunity for cross-examination anyway. I don't think, I think you're right, I don't think they're gonna call witnesses. And so in terms of the outcome of this proceeding, it probably doesn't matter. Um, if it were a criminal case, I think you would wanna do exactly what you said. You would wanna know, all of the things the president was doing, because I think part of the case that's really strong is after he had noticed that there was this attack occurring at at the Capitol, he still didn't do anything. And as president, unlike the rest of us, he actually has an affirmative duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed and to support and defend the constitution that the violation of which is occurring at this moment, uh, when they're not counting votes, they should be counting under the 12th amendment. And so his failure to act uh, was itself part of a a potential crime. Uh, And so if you do have that call with Senator Tuberville uh, where he is not interested in stopping the attack, uh, if he is watching and he's gleeful and he's not doing anything to stop it, I think that would be critically important in a criminal case. Um, It's possible that will happen, I suppose. I don't know what the likelihood is if the Justice Department will pursue criminal charges in this case, they may believe that the impeachment is the proper accounting for all of this. Um, but that would be the place. And, you know, did he communicate with anybody? You know, there's been some reporting about something occurring the night before uh, a meeting at the Trump International Hotel with uh, some of his family members and his close uh, advisors. Um, was there a, a plan um, involved? Was this a conspiracy to engage in seditious conspiracy or uh, an insurrection. And so you could get those communications as well, where there are text messages and phone calls and emails and what was said. You could use grand jury subpoenas to ask people what they said there. Um, So if criminal charges are pursued, that would be uh, beneficial as well. I imagine part of the calculus of the house managers also was speed. If you wait months and months for this to go by, when memories are less fresh, uh, it may be that the case is less compelling and they want to provide for this accounting. Um, you know, the more time that goes by, I suppose the stronger it becomes that argument by um, uh, senators who are opposed to a trial after a president's term has ended that uh, we need to just get on with, uh, on with our lives. And so um, I agree with you that it is, there is a cost to this, but my guess is it was a strategic decision.
1: So I'd like to ask you guys a question and then um, uh, Ryan and, and Barb and Kavita, maybe you, you'll have another question too. And I think that we've got enough time for, sort of for two sets of questions. So you may want to think, think about this before we wrap. But um, following up on what you both have just been talking about, you know, I get the impression that for all the reasons you just said, this thing was moved along, but we've only got half the story. And we don't really have the story about the level of coordination between the White House or senior people associated with the president and the people who put this thing on. And of course, in terms of inciting, in terms of conspiracy, in terms of intent, these are important things. We, we do have some idea that the president uh, funded the big lie, $50 million campaign. We do have some idea that the president, people around the president helped organize the event, Help it get its permits and and so on and so forth. That some of the funding for the event came from a group in which um, Clarence Thomas's wife is a member of the of of the group. Um, which you know you kind of think that wouldn't happen without some wink and a nod at least from higher ups at the White House. This this uh, event that Barb. Is talking about uh, is again if it involved relatives of the president or close aides to the president suggests a higher degree of coordination, um, and you know you have pictures of Roger Stone hanging out with the Oath Keepers r- right before and and doing a lot of stuff as he did with them and and the Proud Boys, who by the way have been declared by the Canadian government to be a terrorist group mm-hmm. even before we've done that. Um, it sounds like. Unless there is a criminal case, or some other high-level investigation, possibly some kind of commission within the the the, the Congress, we're not going to get to the bottom of this. Do, 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 do you know? Do you think an objective Justice Department investigates the White House role in this? First Ryan, then Barb, and then.
2: Um. So I think that they, I do think that an objective, follow the law, follow the evidence, gets you to a close circle of people, uh, people who are within the close circle of uh, Donald J. Trump. So I don't see how, I've mentioned it once before in the show, I don't see how the FBI does not look at Roger Stone I mean, he's hanging out with the Oath Keepers the night before the morning of. He's work. He's with the Proud Boys. He's been with the Proud Boys for years, but he's with the Proud Boys on a Stop the Steal event in D.C. on December 11th. And these are the groups that, according to current court findings by the Justice Department,
1: pre-planned parts of the attack. And, and by the way, out, I, I think today five members of the Proud Boys were arrested at w- in regard to conspiracy charges in regard to this event.
2: Yeah, so, and if those, some of those Proud boys, in- including uh, their leader, Enrique Atario, who has a history of cooperating with the, with, with the federal government, uh, end up cooperating, I imagine there are a bunch of questions that have Roger Stone in them. Um, and uh, so I think that that's one avenue. Um, and you know, th- th- just to mention because we haven't mentioned it yet, the we mentioned maybe before in the podcast, but in other podcasts, uh, the D.C. Attorney General has said that he is um, having an investigation into the question of incitement to riot, which is a uh, federal off- a federal offense under D.C. law, and he meant, and he meant Donald J. Trump in his um, speech, and I think if anything, the House managers have given him even more fodder to think about going further down that path, um, with respect to the presentation that they've given, especially because their presentation, this is another topic we could discuss at some point, but their presentation has been framed as a criminal matter. They keep referring to it as a crime. They've built actually a criminal case here. Um, So I think that's another further evidence that if you follow the law, follow the uh, evidence, it it does point to asking this question um, for the president himself, uh, incitement to riot, incitement uh, to
1: violence. Yeah, Barb. I'd love your answer too, but I just, in the in the context of the fact that, in the kind of astonishingly bad opening presentations by the president's lawyers, uh, at one point um, uh, one of his lawyers said, "Hey, if it's a criminal matter, arrest him," <laughs> which I kind of thought like you know everybody in the audience was like, "Yeah, okay, you know, you know, do that," but but you know that 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 colored colored this a little bit too. You're a prosecutor. What do you think? Do you think somebody prosecutes?
3: Yeah, um, I don't know, but I do think it's worthy of investigation. And I have a lot of confidence in the DOJ's ability to conduct an investigation because they have something that the, you know, the House managers don't have, which is the grand jury process. Um, President Trump was able to very successfully thwart some of those tools when he was president because he himself refused to Uh, provide testimony. Remember, he would only respond to written questions and then only about um, the underlying uh, Russia matter itself, not about obstruction of justice. And he had the pardon power in his back pocket which he used for people like Roger Stone and Paul Manafort and others which prevented them from being as forthcoming as I think they otherwise would be. Ordinarily, There is that very real fear that someone could be charged with a serious crime and do serious time for it that causes people to be forthcoming before a grand jury. Um, And I think that this Justice Department, now that President Trump is out of power, would have all of those tools at its disposal. So you know, you you don't know until you learn the facts whether charges would be filed, but I think that this Justice Department um, has a duty to at least investigate what the connections were between President Trump and his closest associates and the rioters.
1: Kavita, we've just got a couple minutes left. Maybe you have a last question or comment plus question.
0: I'm going to ask Barbara, and you don't have to answer it exactly how I'm asking it because it's not fair. I'm asking you to think um, without trying to seem critical of the House impeachment managers, what would you do differently, if anything?
3: Oh, as the House impeachment managers?
0: Yeah. Is there anything now that you've kind of, you've been really steeped in this and Mm -hmm. obviously have your own very kind of esteemed record. If you were in any one of the manager's shoes, is there something different that you would do about it?
3: Yeah, I think I would have called live witnesses. You know, um, there's been some uh, conversation about whether President Trump himself should have testified. I, yeah. I, 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 don't think I would call him as a witness. I think he's likely to invoke the Fifth Amendment because he does have some criminal exposure in, in a potential prosecution. But I'd like to hear from people like you know Eugene Goodman or these staffers who were under the table in Nancy Pelosi's office or the police officers who were there defending, uh, and you know, for their, their lives, fighting for their lives. I'd like to hear from them because I think it would be incredibly compelling. And I think that's the kind of testimony that members of the public could really relate to. I just want to hear from regular people what this was like that day. Um, and I think uh, that would be maybe one suggestion I would have had. And you could do it in a day, right? You just It's not like this would drag things out for months and months. Of course, that would require working out this arrangement um, in the Senate. But I think they have the votes. Uh, they can They have 50 votes and the ability to break a tie if they want to. So I think I would have done that just to humanize this um, a little more, um, just hearing directly from those people, I think, would have been really powerful.
1: Okay, last 30-second question, following up on that, Ryan. Um, Lindsey Graham, who's, if anything, has grown more odious in the past three days, um, uh, went completely berserk at the idea of witnesses. And he was like, well, if they're witnesses, then I'm going to call you know, Nancy Pelosi. And, but I mean, he, he was, why does it freak Lindsey Graham out to have witnesses?
2: So I, I, yeah I took that as a sign as well that um, witnesses would strengthen the house manager's case because of the way in which Lindsey Graham reacted. That's my, you know, 20 of my 30 seconds. And, um, and he tried this before, I think he said something very similar in the first impeachment. Um, that will drag it out, et cetera. So he's trying to threaten the idea that this would interfere even more with the Democrats' uh, legislative agenda and Biden's agenda. But um, you know, I would think that you could otherwise have called his bluff um, if they wanted to go down that path.
1: I agree. Um, I do. I do. Normally, I don't just sort of say, you know, hey, go read this thing I wrote. I wrote a column today in the Daily Beast about Joe Biden's superpower. Um, And uh, the superpower I was describing was the fact that he has handled this. However, the house managers have handled it perfectly because he has stayed focused on doing his job, Uh, focused on the COVID response, focused on talking to the Chinese, talked for two hours last night to Xi Jinping. You can only imagine how much Adderall Donald Trump would have had to take to maintain his attention for two hours in a conversation. Um, but uh, you know he's been doing his thing. He has not gotten involved in this. Uh, and if you're interested in that particular take on this, go, go look at that at the Daily Beast. Uh, we'll obviously come back next week. It'll all be over then. We'll be moving on to the next phase of all of this. Of course, next week and beyond, we hope you'll be listening here to Deep State Radio, but also to Barb's podcast, uh, Sisters in Law. Um, uh, one of Barb's co podcast hosts was was on my sister's podcast that we do here, Secret Life of Cookies, two weeks ago. Uh, Joyce Vance baking and uh also talking about her chickens. If you haven't heard that, it's very illuminating about chickens. Um, uh, just as Kavita's performance on that was. And I Kavita, are you planning a career change into yeah, no, not yeah. into baking or none, none of that. Okay. Uh, okay. And we've, you know, uh, uh, so, you know, if you want to listen to that, listen to that, go to the dsrnetwork.com for more information, sign up to be a member and we've got a lot of very interesting stuff every day of every week now. So uh, uh, please join us again for all of that. And remember, if you take one thing away from this podcast, if you see a can and it is Mark, this contains all the COVID on the planet earth, do not. Drink that can. Um, uh, thank you very much, Kavita. Thank you very much, uh, Barb. Thank you very much, um, Ryan. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And stay healthy, everybody. Bye bye.